1: Hello, thanks for joining us for this episode of New Books in Philosophy. I'm Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the program with Carrie Figger, and Carrie is Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. My guest today is Jean Cazez. Jean teaches philosophy at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. She's also an editor and a writer for the Philosophers Magazine. Her new book is titled The Philosophical Parent, Asking the Hard Questions About Having and Raising Children. It's published by Oxford University Press. Now, I take it we all recognize that parenting involves a seemingly endless succession of choices, beginning perhaps with the choice to become a parent, through a sequence of decisions concerning the care, upbringing, acculturation, and education of a child. And I guess we also all recognize that many of these decisions are impactful. More specifically, we know that the choices parents make often deeply impact the lives of others, including especially the life of the child. Now, given the sheer number of impactful other-regarding decisions that are involved in parenting, one might expect parenthood to be a major site of philosophical attention, but it isn't really. In her new book... Jean Cazez philosophically engages with the broad range of questions that parents must confront. The Philosophical Parent is a lively and accessible book that addresses deep philosophical questions in a way that a non-academic reader could appreciate. But nonetheless, it's philosophically nuanced. So there's a lot to talk about. But let's begin by greeting our guest. Hello,
0: Jean. Hi, Mom. Uh, thank you for having me on the podcast.
1: Well, thank you for joining us. Um, why don't you start off, as we usually do with these uh, uh, episodes, why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself?
0: Okay. I'm uh, from State College, Pennsylvania, and uh, that's the town where Penn State is. It, uh, my father was a, uh, a physics professor there, and uh, he was the uh, the advisor for the pre-med majors so he was very pleased when I uh, told him I was going to be a pre-med. Uh, however, in my freshman year in, uh, in college, I took an English class where we read the that famous uh, Sartre article, Existentialism as a Humanism. Okay. And I uh, just loved that article. And uh, I was just right away a philosophy major, uh, not a pre-med. Um, okay. So he seems to, What did he make of that? Well, you know, he's actually a fairly philosophical person. <laughs> so I think I may have inherited my philosophical tendencies from him. Um, so I think he, he recovered fairly quickly and <laughs> it was okay. Um, so at Penn State, the, the philosophy department is very continental. And so I had a kind of a little bit of a strange introduction to philosophy. At least that's the way I view it now. Um, I remember taking a class on the whole, uh, W-H-O-L-E, and uh, other sort of big classes like, uh, you know, a full year class where we read Hegel's Phenomenology of Mind. And so I was kind of immersed in this sort of really deep, uh, you know, big issue philosophy. But uh, then in my senior year, I took a course in the philosophy of language where we talked about proper names, um, and I just loved that. I sort of discovered I was really more of an analytic philosopher. Um, and I have to say I did struggle with how it is that one subject can be about both the whole and about proper names. It's sort of confusing. <laughs> uh, but anyway um, – We're all
1: confused by that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Just, it, it was a strange introduction to philosophy, but um, to kind of fast forward uh, quite a bit, um, I wound up getting my Ph.D. at uh, University of Arizona, where I worked on issues in philosophy of mind and philosophy of language, and which is what I did for the first several years at SMU. Um, so now what on earth is, you know, how did I get from there to writing this book about parenthood? Um, maybe we'll we'll get into that. Excellent. Um,
1: so, w- w- why don't we? Uh, l- let, me, let me just now ask you directly. Um, so, uh, the book, The Philosophical Parent, um, as its title announces, um, is a, a book about the uh, philosophical questions that are occasioned by parenthood. Um, and we'll get to some of, those, uh, some of those questions in a bit, but, yeah, why don't you fill in the details? How did you come to write a book about parenting, Okay, so when
0: I was uh, had been at SMU for about four years, I had twins, and I was going to be up for tenure um, a year or two later. And I decided I I just could not put those two things together, and so I decided to become a part time person, um, so I could you know spend more time with my kids. And uh, so for the next several years, I was teaching at night, so I could be with my kids a lot. And I found this sort of a transformative experience in the in the sense of sort of Lori Paul's uh, book, and where everything sort of seemed different um, because. You know, before that point, I really never imagined being at home with children as something I would enjoy or that would make me feel, you know, I was living my life well. But suddenly I really enjoyed what I was doing and I I was very surprised by that. So um, I started thinking about the good life and I started teaching a course on the good life. Um, And then out of that came the idea for a book on the good life. Um, which I assumed would have sort of big – that there would be big stretches of it about parenthood. turns out there was about one page about parenthood because the whole topic of the book, The Good Life, is a big topic where there's lots, lots, lots of things to discuss. Uh, so I decided that I would later on write a book about parenthood. And uh, so it took me quite a while to do that. And one of the reasons for it, for that is because I really didn't feel like I could write about – the various um, stages of parenthood without actually going through them. So I didn't finish the book until my children were ready to go off to college, um, and I had, you know, had first-hand experience of all the things I talk about in the book. Well, that's so. Let me just ask: so, were there parts of the book,
1: um, for example, there are some parts of the book that talk about some very early decision making that parents have to confront. Um, is there a chance that some of those, some of those parts were Um, if not written, at least thought through uh, at the time you were actually confronting those very choices in your own case?
0: Well, okay. So to some extent, I filled in things um, retrospectively. So there's some issues about whether or not to have children that I definitely did not think about before I decided to have children. So it's more like I've kind of of, uh, put it together as if I had thought about it. Um, But a lot of the issues I did think about, like, you know, whether a lot of the questions about how we actually treat children, um, whether to lie to children, uh, religious education, the parenting topics are all sort of first-hand topics, but some of the more deeper, uh, some of the deeper questions about just whether to create children and so on, they're a little bit more conceptual, but uh, I put everything in the order, in a chronological order, in the manner of a kind of a what-to-expect book, so it sort of starts from the very beginning and goes through 18 chapters of, you know, what what you're really doing um, in deciding to have children, um, being pregnant, giving birth. Uh, dealing with the first decisions after you give birth and so, on and so on. So I've sort of pretended as if I've got a reader who's going to sit there and read the book for 18 years <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and they're going to have it as a companion as they actually encounter philosophical puzzles. Well, you know,
1: <laughs> I, I'm embarrassed. Um, uh, I'm embarrassed to confess that uh, I'm only now in looking at the book and hearing you. I only now just
0: realized it has 18 chapters. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's it's not really. It's not like the first chapter is about age one, the second chapter, is about age, but it's but the the number 18. It's kind of a magic number as if you're a parent <laughs> because it's at the point where they're 18 that they're going to leave you, yeah, and exactly you know. <laughs> so
1: uh, well, fant- I'm 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 glad you made note of that because that that's delightful.
0: Um, I had that kind of. Start Stretch it out a little bit, actually, to make it eighteen. So there's a couple of kind of potato chip chapters that are so short because I wanted that number eighteen.
1: <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. So why don't we? Um, great. We'll let's turn to some of the uh, some of the the, 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 the nitty gritty of, of of what's in the book. Um, and as you already indicated, the book sort of follows a a chronological progression, beginning with the, you know, the issues about deciding to become a parent, and then ultimately ending on um, questions about, um, you know, dealing with adult children and um, and uh, letting go in a way. But um, as a good philosopher, you you begin where you know philosophers like to begin with the "what is X" question, um, and so the the book begins kind of with an analysis of. Um, what children are, or how we should best understand the parent-child relation, Uh, and you defend a kind of um, Aristotelian thought that winds up uh, playing a role in the analysis uh, uh, subsequent uh, to, uh, you know, throughout the book, actually. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, why you think it's best to conceive of children as um, extensions of the self, or second
0: selves, as Aristotle put it? Sure. Okay, so let me just start with the Aristotle quote. So he says, a parent then loves his children as he loves himself, for what has come from him is a sort of other self. And, you know, that resonates with me. I don't want to go too far with it. I mean, my children will kill me if I I, you know go on this podcast and say that they're like mini me. I mean, that's sort of a horrible view. but, um, But in some sense, um, children are self-like. And I think you often hear parents talk like that. You know, parents talk about their children as a part of themselves. Um, for example, if you read memoirs about people giving up a child for adoption, um, they will express a pain about that by saying, you know, she was a part of me or he was a part of me. You know, so so I think that there's, a, that just has a, a certain truth to it, especially if we emphasize that child is a second self but separate okay so Aristotle says that as well Um, so uh, now what do I really mean by that I try to sort of spell that out in detail what I mean is that uh, we have a lot of attitudes towards ourselves that we also have towards children towards our children so for example you aren't competitive with yourself. You know, you're thrilled if you do well at things or you don't worry about whether you're doing better today than you did yesterday. Um, likewise, people tend to be non-competitive with their children. Uh, so, for example, you you often hear people say with great pride, my child beat me at chess or my child, you know, is a much better tennis player than me or whatever. And so so that's one kind of way in which children are self like uh, we're and, also, and it also yeah. seems that in those cases where you do
1: encounter a parent who's competitive with his or her child, that looks criticizable, or it looks like a signal of some uh, something's gone wrong, right?
0: Yeah, it seems very odd. Yeah. you know, yeah. it seems um, there's something's gone wrong there, and it's not like it never happens. I don't want to be overly idealistic and you know romanticize things, but but it, you you much more often see people very being very proud of uh, you know my son is better looking than me or you know, whatever. Right. Um, so, um, so other things, you know, we are proud of our own accomplishments, but also proud of our children. We can also be sort of ashamed of our children in a kind of very personal way. So um, if your kid flunks math, it's not just that your kid flunks math. It's, it's, you know, it's sort of a painful thing for you as well. You know, now you don't want to go too far with that. It's your kid who flunked math. You know, and if people go too far and don't recognize their children are separate people, then they're getting into another kind of a sort of pathology. But um, let's see, a couple other things. We are hugely invested in our children's survival. Um, people say, you know, nothing, there's just nothing worse than to lose a child. We get some satisfaction from the idea that Our children will survive us so that we'll still in some sense be around after the end of our own lives. Um, One last thing, we tend to be very non-objective about our children like we are about ourselves. So everybody says, you know, I have the most beautiful child in the world or my child is perfect when the child is first born. They're obviously, and you know, everybody else uh, has other opinions about just how beautiful that child is. But, <laughs> but to the parent, the child is just truly beautiful.
1: Right. Excellent. So, um, uh, may- maybe then uh, it it it, uh, it makes sense to ask sort of the next question, um, which is uh, once we figure out how we should understand what a child is, a uh, a kind of s- second but separate self. Um, uh, the decision to become a parent um, uh, is, is one of the first uh, topics that comes up in the book. Um, and there you engage in a, um, a sort of – a um, you engage with, let's say, um, a view that um, some listeners I'm sure will be familiar with, um, the antinatalist view, the view uh, of some philosophers uh, according to which um, – there's something wrong uh morally there's something morally wrong or objectionable about having children yeah um, can you tell us a little bit about this view and 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 where you think it 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 misses the mark
0: okay sure so so the idea that children are second selves but separate i think it it has a payoff for understanding many different issues and uh but it I don't really, I certainly don't use it in every chapter. And in the chapter on um, responding to antinatalists, I don't find it particularly useful. So let's set aside that second self stuff for a second. And hopefully we'll come back to it where it has more relevance. But So um, in the second chapter, I talk about um, the philosopher David Benatar, who wrote this fascinating book, uh, Better Never to Have Been. And and just to sort of put that in context a little bit, I actually first read the book when my children were i think 10 years old and, and and at that time i just really felt like creating my children was really honestly the thing that i was most proud of or the most meaningful thing in my life and so i was really just truly shocked to read benatar's argument that if you create a child you actually harm the child <laughs> and you know you do wrong as a in contrast with being doing something that you should be proud of. Um, and I remember uh, one of my little failings as a parent is that I do talk, tend to talk about just anything at the dinner table. So I remember talking to my 10 year olds about Benatar's view. I'm <laughs> <and> try, <laughs> trying to explain the argument to them, and, and and trying to get everybody to talk about where does the argument go wrong, and it, maybe this was not good parenting because I think it is a very sinister, it's sort of a sinister, disturbing view. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, but um. So maybe I should sort of try to explain what Benatar's argument is. Yeah. Um. Should we do that? Okay. So Benatar says, um, suppose suppose that you're. Thinking about uh, having a child, and let's let's call that child Charlie. And you're picturing picturing, um, the world with and without Charlie. If you if you don't have Charlie, but and and also think about the fact that Charlie's life will will include both positives and negatives. So any child's going to have an occasional headache or whatever. So if you don't uh, create Charlie, it will be good that He didn't. There there weren't the headaches he would have had. So the absence of his pains will be good. Um, On the other hand, it doesn't seem like the absence of his pleasures will be bad. So if you think of a world where Charlie never enjoys eating chocolate ice cream, it doesn't seem bad that those pleasures are missing. So if you kind of put those things together, the both the the um, good of the missing pleasures. uh, Sorry. The good of the missing pains and the the not bad of the missing pleasures. He thinks that you add that all up, and it turns out that it's just all good if you don't have Charlie, and not bad at all if you. Sorry, I think I might have said that wrong. Yeah, yeah, it's it's just all good if you don't have Charlie. Um, It's a fascinating view, right? (laughs) Yeah, it is a fascinating view. It's an extremely challenging view, something, you know, worth thinking about carefully. It's worth – I mean, I've read his book several times and really thought about it deeply. The point where I got off the train and, and just disagree is that um, I think it isn't necessarily um, not bad if Charlie's pleasures are missing from the world. Um, I think maybe it actually is bad. So if you um, – Picture a, a you know, there's a lot of places in the world where people are having very few children. Um, so you kind of imagine one of these places where the uh, reproductive level is very low. And imagine a playground where there used to be children having, you know, running around having fun. Now there's nobody on the merry-go-round. There's nobody on the slide. There aren't the, you know, the thrills and the screams of joy and everything um, it seems like it, it's not implausible that it actually is bad that those pleasures are missing. Um, so to, to make Benatar's argument work, we have to say that it is not bad. Um, and I'm going to just bite the bullet and say, no, it is a little bit bad. <laughs> uh, there you go. Now, um, we could talk about Benatar's argument for the rest of this interview, <laughs> discuss whether that's really a, a viable response. But that's basically my, my response. Well, it
1: certainly does. I mean, the, um, the the intuition that you've that you've got, which I share, um, that there is something, there, there is a kind of loss. Uh, uh, you know, there is a kind of loss of something good if Charlie is not created. Um, yeah. You know, it, it just shows that in order to get the Benatar argument to work, you, 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 one needs to say um, uh, a lot about. Um, uh, a particular theory of value of which I yeah. it, you know he he has to think that well if it, it it's it's got to yeah it it can't be experienced as a as a as a loss so if it mm-hmm. can't be experienced as a loss exactly it can't be a loss
0: yeah um right so we well, just want to add a few things about that the um I think these intuitions about what's bad and what's good, they're they're very, very delicate. You know, you have the intuition, is it bad or is it good? And you have these these intuitions in a very flickering kind of way. And I I find it a very uh, kind of a bizarre thing to think that somebody is really going to plan these very fundamental parts of their lives, you know, based on these sort of flickering, subtle, philosophical intuitions. but setting that aside, uh, I also just want to emphasize that if I say that it's bad that Charlie doesn't exist because his his pleasures are missing, that doesn't mean I think that there is some kind of um, very strong duty to, to make Charlie. Right. Um, there are people who think that when you have a child, you give the child a gift of life. And if you don't have a child, the child is sort of stuck in non-existence, you know, flailing about without the gift of life. And so when you have a child, you're kind of helping a child come out of non-existence into existence. If you really thought that way, then there would be a very uh, strong duty to have children and be like they're locked in the closet, you know, let them out. Right. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't have that view at all. So by by disagreeing with Benatar, I'm not going full tilt over to a really pro natalist position where everybody ought to run around having as many children as possible. <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> that's good. That's very good. So we don't want I think that's part of Benatar's argument. He thinks that if we disagree with him, we're going to wind up having to be. Um, full board pronatalists. And I, I think that's not the case. Right. 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 So, um, great. Let's get,
1: uh, let's get back then to the, um, uh, to the Aristotelian sort of thought, um, because you do have a chapter also early in the book about, um, to what extent the, the, the biological continuity between, um, you know, parents and their biological children matters. Um, can you tell uh-huh. us
0: a little bit about that? Okay. So I, um, So part of what I'm agreeing with in Aristotle is that uh, a a parent loves his children as he loves himself. uh, But also I agree with that second sentence where he says, for what has come from him is a sort of other self. So the coming from relationship is important. And um, I do think that that initial feeling that a child is a part of you uh, or self-like, it does have to do for a biological parent has to do with the fact that the child comes from you. But I don't want to I also don't want to completely exclude uh, adoptive parenthood and I wouldn't want to have an entirely different account of it. And so I think adoptive parents, you know, ultimately they just experience parenthood just the way that. um biological parents do sort of in the fullness of time Um, so what I say about that I mean I sort of struggle with that because I think that's a hard issue but uh, what I say about that is there's actually many ways that children um, can come from parents so the way children come from mothers is quite different from the way they come from fathers and likewise um, there is a way in which children come from adoptive parents it's just not the, the way in which they're uh, they come from biological mothers or biological fathers. So they, they come from adoptive parents in the sense that um, adoptive parents go through all these, make all these efforts over, you know, 18 years that kind of gradually transform the child from being a tiny little squirming baby into an adult. And so having that kind of transformative influence on another person's life it sets out something uh, very much like that feeling of um, the child come from the parent. Excellent. So um,
1: good. Because one wonder, I mean, th- there is a, I am, t- I, I learned as, as uh, among other things, apart reading your book, um, there is a, a stronger v- sort of anti-biology uh, or, or, or uh, not anti-biology, but a view that is, is, is pretty strident in denying the relevance of biology.
0: Yeah. I, you know, there, you read people like um, Peter Kahn and Elizabeth Barthoulet, who they talk about um, I can't remember the, the, the blood myth, you know the myth that biology matters at all. Um, and I, I think the reason why they talk that way, it really has to do with the fact that they are adoptive parents, and they don't want adoption to be stigmatized, and, which of course, I don't want it to be stigmatized either. Um, They're also worried about the fact that there are lots of um, foster kids out there and, you know, unadopted kids who need parents. So I'm totally on board with the things they're concerned about. But the thing is, there are a lot of other things we need to be concerned about. Um, So, for example, it just so happens that uh, recently Canada has uh, apologized to uh, First Nations for the fact that uh, for decades in the 20th century, Um, indigenous children were just grabbed from their parents and given to adoptive parents Um, and if if, if there was really just truly a blood myth and biological connections didn't matter at all you know that might be all to the good because in reality a lot of those children were living in poverty and it it might be that in some ways they were better off um, being adopted Um, so I think if you're if you're worried about that kind of issue of um, parental rights to their own children, you're not really going to want to seriously say that, um, that biology doesn't matter.
1: Right, 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 right. Moving on to the, um, so, there are several chapters, uh, in the book about issues that are sort of broadly engaged with, um, questions about, uh, gender. Um, and, um, Surely parenting, uh, in fact, parenting from, from very early stages, maybe even uh, before uh, one, uh, one leaves the hospital, um, there are kinds of questions that have to be answered um, about um, uh, circumcision, for example, but also uh, later about uh, gender roles and children you know, playing with dolls rather than trucks and the rest. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about some of the reflections uh, on gender and gender roles in parenting that uh, appear in the book? Okay.
0: Uh let's see. So the, the, the chapter on gender. So in the second half of the book, I'm talking about issues that really come up for people after they've already become parents. So um, one issue for parents is sort of one's a really fundamental issue is whether they should even care care whether they're having a boy boy or a girl. Um, and people do Care a lot of it. Apparently, this is something I just learned recently, a whole new thing for parents is having gender reveal parties. So apparently people are now, they're they're finding out the gender of their child during pregnancy and then they'll have like a gender reveal. party. (laughs) I I know, I know. I find that uh, honestly just completely amazing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I, I wouldn't even know how about how to go about having a gender reveal party, but apparently this is something people do. Um, <laughs> I know, I, know, I, know. I, mean, I think there's such a thing as like caring to an appropriate degree and there's such a thing as caring too much. And I don't think the caring too much, the reason why it is too much is, is because if you expect too much from, you know, having a girl, if you expect a girl to be really girly and a boy to be all boy, um, you it, things may vary you know, they're very likely to go differently than you expect. Um, And so you kind of box children in in a in a problematic way. Now, what I discuss, uh, I I think I guess I sort of assume my reader is not that kind of a person that sort of within academia and people are interested in philosophy. They're likely to carry about care about gender too little rather than too much. Um, So too little might mean where you you um, take the attitude of a a couple I talk about later in that chapter who decided to um, conceal the child's gender um, so that nobody would know if it was a boy or a girl. And, uh, and, and, you know, the child has some sort of gender neutral name. I think maybe it was storm or something. I can't remember what it was. Um, And uh, so they try to get it so that they and other people would just interact with the child as if it, have no gender so I I think that's going too far uh why is it going too far um I mean I, I talk in the chapter a lot about just what sex is sort of talk about the metaphysics of sex and gender and I don't take the most extreme position on which uh sex is just entirely socially constructed and gender is entirely socially constructed i think that babies do come into the world um in a sex category unless they happen to be in inter- intersex mm-hmm. um and to some extent the way we treat them and the way we we decide that this is a boy or this is a girl to some extent that is provisional because i think that at, at a point where the child actually develops its own gender identity, that gender identity should be allowed to um, supersede the initial uh, sex assignment. Um, so, but, but I think that part of the way that children kind of arrive at a gender identity, as far as I read the, the literature on this, is that they actually kind of look at themselves, they look at other people, and they arrive at that gender identity by understanding where they fit. Um, and so if you just conceal some of the evidence, you conceal some of the data, you are just limiting your your child's ability to sort of arrive at a gender identity in a sort of in, in the normal way. Right. So um, and
1: would you say similar things just about um, parenting decisions uh, in, in maybe less extreme uh, ways where um, should parents um be concerned about uh, um, uh, their daughters electing to play with dolls rather than um, uh, or wanting to dress up uh, uh, in dresses. I mean, are these things that, I mean, uh, some of the, some of my, some of the people I know who have children are are, are very concerned about these things when they happen.
0: Yeah. I I think it's a good idea to just kind of basically let the kid know you're whether the, whether he is a boy or she is a girl. I mean, I think those are things that you you want to let the kid know where he fits in or she fits in. Um, and what that means is, you know, I don't know, I guess that means um, certain haircuts for boys and other haircuts for girls. I and mean, there's certain things we do uh, to just communicate whether the child is a boy or a girl. But now going further than that, I personally was quite concerned not to um put my kids in boxes and uh so now it so happens I have boy girl twins who constantly played together and so anything I gave to one I also gave to the other um so I that almost sort of solved for me um but um yeah I mean I was careful not to I'm sort of against the whole sort of Barbie doll kind of training of girls. I was careful not to do that and careful not to give guns to boys. So I'm I'm, I'm a pretty, you know, typical liberal parent who does not want to rigidly uh, gender train children. Um, But at the same time, I guess I have to say that I also think that children just will let you know what they need and what they want and what they don't want. Um, And as it turned out, my daughter was less interested in girly things than I was as a, as a girl. Um, and my son was, you know, more interested in sort of girl, you know, playing with, um, you know, storytelling and those kinds of activities. Um, so, so I don't know. I, I, I don't think we should box children in, but I also don't think we should pretend to, that we can just sort of erase gender. I don't think that's necessarily, a, a Good, considering the way that children um, have to, considering the kind of world that children have to cope with, and also considering what I understand about sort of gender identity formation.
1: What about lying to children? So you've got a um, a chapter on uh, uh, on lies, and um, uh, you you address sort of two broad uh, sort of issues about lying and children. One is the lying to your children and the other is lying for them.
0: Uh, Tell us us about how that runs. Okay, so there are various different situations in in which people are tempted to lie to their children. Um, And I think you could take just a really um, firm line on this, that lying is always wrong, but I don't think anybody really believes that. I think what we think is that lying is to be avoided, and um unless you have a good reason to to lie so um so i go through various possible reasons one reason is just for the sake of entertainment um you have children kind of live in a world of make-believe they they read storybooks they're used to um imaginary characters and they enjoy sort of having the imaginary character Leap off the page, you know, into reality. Um, and so, if you go too far with that, then you really are just sort of flagrantly lying to your child in a way that you probably can't justify. But if you do those sorts of things, sort of with a twinkle in your eye, it, you are not really incapacitating the child because the child can see that twinkle and sort of use it or not use it as they prefer. Um, so, for example, if a lie is about um, the tooth fairy, you can, you know, you can kind of talk about the tooth fairy in such a way that it's so obvious that you're pretending that it really is within the child's power to go along with the pretense or not go along. Um, so I think I'm, I'm okay with those kinds of lies if they are told with a twinkle in your eye. So what, uh-huh. so what, very quickly. So,
1: um, but of, of course, not every um not every fiction of the tooth fairy sort is 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 told by parents with the twinkle. And yeah. so think about Santa Claus and um, uh, uh, the way in which a, a certain kind of um, uh, deception is uh, it's a little bit more. Uh, I don't know if militant is the right word, but is sort of socially reinforced and 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 uh, uh, inculcated uh, in, in all kinds of ways.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's uh, if you're really incapacitating your child so they cannot discover uh, what is true and what is false. There's something problematic about that. And one of the one of the one of the problems, I think, if you just truly fool your child, what parents often do when they succeed at that is they laugh at the child behind their back (laughs) or even sort of in front of the child. So the child kind of gets the feeling that they're the butt of some kind of a joke that, that people are and but cannot figure out what the, what's really going on. That that seems sort of basically harmful. Um, But, you know, I don't want to get too, you know, one doesn't want to be too serious and strict about this. I mean, it's not as if, the sky's going to fall if you tell your child that, you know, Santa Claus came down the chimney. Um, but I personally would sort of hold back on that and make sure that the child has the tools to figure it out. Um,
1: so what about lying for children
0: then? Okay, so lying for children, the where this I found this came up in my own life is that um, sometimes children are utterly exhausted and have – way too much homework to do. Um, and so you have the option of making them just miss school and have to pay for it in some way or another or writing them a, a, a false excuse. Um, now, it might, think, it might seem like, well, obviously, you have to just let them pay for it. But, in fact, sometimes there are repercussions where something kind of serious will happen as a result of the absence. Um, and And, on the other hand, the reason for the absence is something that you thought really made sense uh, so for example, when my kids were i can't remember how they all how how old they were, but we took them to a Hillary Clinton rally um one year, and therefore they had to miss school another time we let them stay home to watch Barack Obama um, be inaugurated so and we consider these things like important. You know, seriously valuable, valuable acti- activities. So we really wouldn't want them to have to just um, either, uh, you know, have to be um we, we wouldn't th- want them to have to suffer negative consequences as a result of doing things that we consider justifiable. Um, so do you lie? Do you not lie? Uh, I think probably it's not so good to tell a lie, but uh, I'm not going to tell you what I did because um, I I might incriminate myself. Uh, (laughs) So uh, I I don't really – I can't say that throughout this book. I can always hold myself up as a model of uh, the good parent. Um, But at least I can sort of think about (laughs) – I can think about my failings with more sophistication (laughs) as a result of my philosophical training. It has
1: (laughs) benefits, yes. Um, Yes.
0: (laughs) Can you say something – Um, One
1: of the things that comes up sort of in the neighborhood uh, uh, of this chapter online is um, about religious education. Um, Yeah. Can you say something uh, about the choices um, that a parent has to make about, uh, you know, religious education and,
0: you know, uh, interactions with religious communities? Okay. So some people take the view that you should be a sort of neutral steward for your child, um, just preparing them to, uh, you're giving them the um, critical thinking tools to make their own choices later on, you know, when it comes to religion and values and, and everything else. So I don't have that view. I think the whole idea that children are sort of second selves but separate means that you do have more a more prerogative to more prerogatives to kind of share your own way of life and your own values. Um, so when I uh, I'm myself. Jewish but a Jewish atheist and so that puts that's a somewhat odd category. Um, mm-hmm. What that means is I don't believe any of that stuff uh, but at the same time I want to share with my children sort of a sense of Jewishness and something some aspects of Jewish life. Um, so uh, yeah. I I think I, that, that's fine you know and when it comes to the various ways in which um, Jewish life go on. But but one idea I had when they were about seven is that, you know, wouldn't it be cool if they went to religious school, which I never did. Um, and so I put them in religious school and then I I just didn't know what to expect. And then I discovered that in a religious school, a teacher actually stands up in front of a classroom, just like in uh, public school and, and really assumes that kind of teacher role and appears to be just telling the kids the truth um, and so religious claims are presented in that way, except that whereas maybe in school you could ask a question, you could express doubts. In the religious school, you have to just sit there and, and sort of say the right things and um, suppress any doubts that you have. Um, so I find that a very problematic thing. And so I, I my view on religious uh, training of children is... Um, that sort of sharing your way of life or your your religion in certain ways is fine, but not where you get to the point where um, you're allowed, you're putting your child in a position where they are forced to suppress doubts and really just not allowed to use their their you know critical faculties.
1: So uh, there was one chapter in the book that I, I um, uh, that I, I was you know, sort of intrigued to discover that um, there are views about um, uh, children entering adulthood um, that advocate for the idea that uh, at a particular age, as a child becomes an adult, uh, she or he has to... um, self-orphan or yeah. create a kind of radical distance between him or herself and, uh, uh, and the parents, um, it sounded like an extreme view. Um,
0: can you tell us a little bit about how that works? Uh, sure. So this, I talked about this in chapter 16, it's about letting go of your children. Um, I wrote that chapter just as my kids were going off to college and I was, <laughs> <laughs> I was probably, I was from that actually a very stressful period. And so, you know, the way I deal with things is to read books about them. So I, I read a fascinating book called um, Excellent Sheep by William Derezowitz. and he talks about the importance of uh you know, not viewing your child as another self. He thinks that's sort of pernicious and will let make you hold on to your child too tightly. So that's one thing I do is to address that view in, in that chapter. But I also um, read this actually wonderful essay by a English professor named Terry Castle, uh, who says that to be a good parent, you have to let your children self orphan. You know, get rid of you, um, distance them, them, themselves. Uh, And she points out that in all the good literature involving children, you know, there's just a vast number of orphans. She has a wonderful list of, you know, 20 famous characters in fiction who are all orphans. So, I mean, I I think that there is something to that. I mean, there's something to children just going off on their own and forming their own lives. Um, But, um, you know, just as, Parents do have it's part of their role to protect their children, but they shouldn't be overprotective. I think it's also true that it's part of a child a parent's role to identify with their child, but they shouldn't over identify. Um, so if it's one thing to really feel what your child is feeling as they go off to college, it's another thing to decide. Uh, well, my child has to go to law school because I'm a lawyer, or my child has to become a philosopher because I'm a philosopher. Um, so, uh, yeah, a, a little bit of self-orphaning, but but uh, we don't need to go quite as far as, as these authors do. So the, the list of the, the literary
1: orphans um, is not a list of literary self-orphans, though, right?
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, they're just literally orphans. Um, so <laughs> I know, it's the, a the self-orphaning thing. I, I guess I do have a section where I talk about, well, what about just orphans? Are really orphans so much better off? Um, because when you really look at the list, they are, actually are orphans. Um, and, and so, I, I, you know, it all gets to be a little bit ridiculous, I think. You know, is Harry Potter really better off because his parents died? I, I don't know. Um, I think the basic idea is that, we need to let children um, make themselves in some sense. And that, there's a lot of truth to that. I don't want to reject that. Sure, sure. Um, so um,
1: winding up with the, uh, the, the later stages now, after we've sort of dealt with uh, children going off to college, um, the book closes with a um, – uh, you know, with some reflections about uh, the meaning of life and the role that um, parenting can play in the meaningfulness of, of one's life. Um, can you tell us a little bit uh, about
0: uh, about your views there? Sure. Um, something I just find quite remarkable is how seldom people talk about parenthood in the literature on the meaning of life. Right. So, you know, says for example, you have... Um, Thomas Nagel's famous article, The Absurd, um, where he says that, uh, you know, we're, we're ultimately caught in between these two stances, one where we take ourselves seriously, you know, from the inside view and one where we sort of doubt whatever we do and we think everything is sort of pointless. And he says that there's just no way we can stop that oscillation because ultimately just anything you do can seem completely pointless. Um, what I just find amazing is that he sort of thinks about various ways to escape this, for example, science, religion, you know, getting involved in a political cause, but he never talks about, you know, just taking care of your children. And mm-hmm. it seems to me that when people are taking care of their child, you know, like your child's sick and you have to take the child to the hospital or whatever, this is the kind of point in life where people just feel completely certain. Um, that what they're doing is important and meaningful. Um, So there's a lot of literature literature which neglects that. But I have to say also that there is one author I really like a lot, Harry Frankfurt, who does really beautifully capture this sense of certainty um, that parents have. And can you tell us a little bit about, about, about that view? Yeah, so he says that, that the, the sort of love that we have for our children gives us something that's akin to mathematical certainty. Mm-hmm. So just as when you're solving a math problem and you get it right, if there's something very restful about that because you just know it's right, mm-hmm. um, the feeling that parents have for children is sort of gives them that kind of restful certainty as well. Um, he also thinks that that kind of uh, love that we have for our children He makes a lot of interesting points about that, about how it's it's the love that makes us see our children as terribly valuable and not their inherent value that makes us love them. Uh, But he also talks about how that kind of very firm, certain love motivates us to to live in certain ways that uh, whereby we we get we find meaning in our lives. So it's sort of a meaning producer um, as well as just something satisfying to us. Right, and you, you you draw the distinction though between um,
1: meaning in life and meaning of life. Um, yeah, and so I, I take it that you would you, you you would reject the thought that parenting is part of the meaning of life, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. There's no. I mean, I don't think there's any, any meaning of life. But um, I, I I make uh, have a little analysis of meaning in life, which says that um, you are engaging in meaningful activities. If your these activities point beyond here and now, that you know they have there are broader goals at stake, um, and you are wholehearted about those activities, and those goals are sufficiently well grounded to survive reflection. Um, so I think in the middle of raising a child, uh, your action your activities do point beyond here and now. You know you're preparing your child for the future, um, and parents are wholehearted about those goals. I mean, I just very, very rarely meet a parent who thinks, Oh, this is silly. What's the point? I'm bored. You know, it just doesn't happen. And I think also, you know, raising a child is an activity that survives reflection. You know, you don't wake up in the middle of the night thinking, Oh my God, why am I doing this? You know, I I don't think that's, so I think that um, raising children meets, you know, it qualifies as a meaningful activity. Now I don't want to be a sort of a, um, you know, proselytize and, or to sound intolerant. Cause I think there are many other activities in life that don't involve children at all. And that non-parents have access to that are also meaningful. Um, but we ought to not exclude parenthood as one of the, uh, potential meaningful activities. So perfect. Um,
1: so Jean, you've been very generous with your time. Um, uh, what's, it's a cruel question to ask at the end, uh, but um, uh, what's the next project?
0: Well, um, I have been thinking for a while about um, writing about old age, ah. um, and you know, my father has been living in assisted living for quite a few quite a few years, and, um, and now in a nursing home. And I found that very it's given rise to lots of sort of thoughts about well being and age. Um, and I'm not quite ready to really sort of start that because I think if you're going to write about old age, you have to have a super cheerful message. Other wise people just don't want to think about old age. Um, and I don't quite have the super cheerful message. yet. So so we'll see once I have it, maybe I'll get started on that. Well, that I'll, I'll keep an eye out for that. Uh, (laughs) that,
1: uh, that sounds very interesting. I'm, uh, I'm told by Martha Nussbaum that uh, old age is also her next project. So um, maybe there'll be a, a renaissance of
0: philosophical literature about aging. Yes, there are a couple of new books about old age. So just like parenthood is somewhat of a neglected topic, so is old age. But, but people are starting just starting to think about it. Well, I'll keep an eye out. Um, but for now, uh, I just I want
1: to thank you again for uh, for joining me on New Books in Philosophy. Well,
0: thank you very much for having me. It
1: was it was fun. Uh, and thank you, listener, for joining us for the discussion of Jean kazez's book. Uh, just to remind you, the, the book is titled "The Philosophical Parent: Asking the Hard Questions About Having and." raising children. Uh, It's published by Oxford University Press. And again, the author is Jean Cazez. Uh, Take care and bye for now.